0: Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God.
1: Friendship with one another.
0: And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First,
1: please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses
0: 27 through 28.
1: The days are surely coming,
0: says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals, and just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Man, thank you, Albany. Thank you, Tamar and everyone for doing all of the things today. We are, we are uh, battling the technology demons against today. Uh, God be praised, but we will figure it out. We are getting it together. So, uh, spoiler alert, right? Spoiler alert. Uh, now, that always makes me nervous because I'm afraid that whoever has used the language of spoiler alert is now going to say something about a show that I want to watch, and now they're going to ruin it for me. Take, for example, Lord of the Rings. How many of you are watching this Lord of the Rings thing? Anybody else out there? Okay, spoiler alert. I am not talking about Lord of the Rings at all today. <laughs> I, I do want to tell you, though, that the sermon today is about forgiveness. That is uh, the end of the story in so many good ways. That is the end of the story. It's about forgiveness. But I want to make sure that right up here at the front, we we talk about what forgiveness isn't. Now, it is immense, this terminal, especially in the mouth of a believer. Especially, more importantly, in the mouth of God, forgiveness is a life-altering thing. It is a, a life enabling thing. It is massive. I, I cannot adequately describe for you today in the words of a sermon just how big and how much potential for change and transformation resides in this concept of forgiveness. It is about forgiveness today. But before I get to a, a kind of a feeble attempt to tell you what forgiveness is, can I tell you what it isn't? Forgiveness in the mouth of Christians, this pastor, in the mouth of God, is not licensed to do wrong. For example, if a spouse is being abused by his or her spouse, Christian forgiveness does not suggest that that Christian spouse needs to keep going back for abuse. That's not what we mean. In fact, there is a sense in which the Christian thing to do because love is, is ordering our steps the Christian thing to do is to not go back into that situation where your abusing spouse can sin again by abusing you. Everybody make sense? Does that make sense? So it, it, is, not, it is not license to continue to commit bad behavior, to, commit to, to continue to commit sins, it's not that. Nor is it simply a verbal exercise. Forgiveness is more than saying with a shrugged shoulder, oh, that's okay, while you then harbor the pain. It is not just a verbal exercise. I mean, you don't get Christian points just by saying, I forgive you, but I hate you, right? So so forgiveness is not licensed to do terrible things and continually, right? That's, That's the cheap grace that we warned about last week. But it's also something more than just something I say because I feel like it's my Christian duty to say it. I mean, we pray it every week, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so sometimes as a pastor, I worry that I am as a believer and others are as believers. Anyone within the sound of my voice, sometimes I think we mistake saying the right things for actually embodying the right things. Saying is part of it. It's part of it, but when we embody it, that's when it becomes true or not. What we embody, what we embody is the truth as we understand it. So it's not license, nor is it a verbal exercise. So given those parameters, let me ask you this question. Do you need to be forgiven? Do you need to offer forgiveness? What forgiveness is, and we will return to this most specifically at the end, but we will kind of glance at it periodically through the sermon, but what forgiveness is, is a release from this sense that you are the bad thing you have done. Let's call that a cage, right? Let's say that you've done a bad thing, and perhaps even in the eyes of the law, you've done this particularly bad thing. And in the eyes of the law, you now are the person who has done that bad thing. That's how they would classify you even. Oh, you are an alcoholic who's been picked up um, several times now for driving under the influence. In the eyes of the law, that's who you are, a drunk driver. And sometimes in relationships, right? In just our person-to-person relationships, let's say one person lies, the other person, perhaps even in a covenantal relationship. Sometimes when that happens within the parameters of a covenantal relationship, the person who has lied is sometimes considered, well, a liar. How does the person who has committed the offense move beyond the cage that that sin, that that bad thing has constructed And how does the person who has been sinned against open the door to truly let that person be something more than, something other than the person who committed the sin? Does that make sense? Forgiveness is a big deal, y'all. And again, I, I don't think that I will today, and maybe not ever as your pastor and preacher, your articulator of faith, in scripture as it has to do with the text handed to me. I don't know that I will ever be able to adequately describe the power of forgiveness, but it does have to do with being let out of a cage. Does everybody appreciate that you are better than and more than the worst thing that you've done? Everybody like to sign on to that? You are I am better than our worst days. More than the worst thing that we have done on our worst days. That doesn't mean that we're not accountable for them. Doesn't mean that we're not accountable. But we are more than and better than our worst moment on our worst day. So is the person in prison, by the way. More than, and perhaps better than, the worst thing he or she has ever done. That... To some extent, that's what drives my work in those fields. We have to understand these people who are behind bars, even the ones on death row, as something more than the worst thing he or she has ever done. Because that is... That is what happens, right? And sometimes that is pressure that we put on ourselves. I mean, I think you can take a look at the people who are exiled now in Israel. We're still talking about the people of Israel, uh, Judah in particular, the people in Jerusalem, even more particularly, who have been just wiped out by the Babylonians or now, many of them at least, are in exile, in a cage of their own making. I mean, the prophets like Jeremiah were saying along the way, guys, if we don't do the things that we are supposed to do as people of the calling, if we don't care for the poor, if we don't care for the orphan and the widow and the immigrant in our midst, if we don't do these things, bad things are going to happen. And we are, whether we know it or not, we are constructing the cage in which we will live for generations. And they didn't listen. And they didn't listen And they made a habit of not listening. And so here's what they did as they didn't listen. While they weren't paying attention to the plight of those people on the margins, they constructed a prison of their own making. Everybody see that? And now here they are in exile. And it feels like to them that this is who they are. Oh, we are the people who broke the covenant. We are the people who sinned and failed dramatically. We are the punished people of God. We are Babylonian prisoners, end of story. Now, we said it last week. Jeremiah was quick to say to them, listen, you need to reject the false prophecy that says, no, the exile will be over very quickly, very soon. Jeremiah was quick to say to them, no, you're not going to be back in two years. You do need to unpack your bags. You need to plant gardens. You need to watch as your kids get married. It's going to be 70 some odd years, and it would be 70 some odd years that you will live in this prison of your own making. But God, but God has not given up on you, for I know the plans I have for you. That's where that line comes in. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for hope and future. But you will be there for 70 years. You are still accountable, but there is hope and a future. Here's another way to say it there is still forgiveness for you that allows for hope and life and future beyond what you are suffering right now. In fact, the very next chapter in the book of Jeremiah, in fact, chapters 31 and 32 are often kind of set aside as their own particular section of the book of Jeremiah, many times called the book of comfort, the book of comfort, or the book of consolation. And the book of consolation does exactly what you'd expect for it to do. God says to a people in exile, it's not always going to be like this. God says to a people suffering exile, there is hope for you because God is willing to forgive. That is why you have hope. The basis of your hope is not that the Babylonians will somehow find their morality. The basis of your hope is that somehow you'll be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and figure it all out. You'll need to come to work every day, but that's not the basis of your hope. The basis of your hope is the God who keeps coming back. (laughs) The God who keeps coming back to you, to the covenant that you broke. That is the basis of your hopes. Let me ask you this one more question before we move on. Who needs to be forgiven like that today? In a room with this many people, and there's not very many because it's fall break Sunday, we should have had this in my office, right, today. But in a room with this many people, inevitably, there's somebody, there's somebody in the room who, when you look in the mirror, Somebody who says that person desperately needs forgiveness. Chapter 30 starts like this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their ancestors, and they shall take possession of it. And then there is this later on in that same chapter, this construction that is always representative of the covenant between God and God's people. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. But the thing you have to remember here, this is what makes this so mind-blowing. And you're, really, there's a lot to blow your mind here if you're paying attention. And here is the first thing. This is spoken not to the good people, but to the people who have fractured the covenant the people who are suffering the punishment that they earned, to those people who were found and caught as guilty, God says, you still will be my people and I still will be your God. And all God's people said. In chapter 31, it says this, and you've already heard this read today, the days are certainly and surely coming, count on it, says the Lord when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. Yes, I know that the homeland looks barren and desolate right now, but the days are coming when it will be something other than that. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow and destroy, to bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. And before we get to this other part, you need to know, But those same verbs, to pluck up and to tear down, to build and to plant, that was all the way back, introduced all the way back in chapter 1, when God says to Jeremiah, hey, I'm calling you into the ministry. I need you to go and be my mouthpiece to the people of God who reject me on a regular basis, who are not doing the things that I've asked them to do as people of the calling, and here's what you should say to them. I'm going to use you to overthrow, to pluck up, to pull down, but also, eventually, To build and to plant. In other words, God has followed through on God's promises. In those days, it says, no longer. In those days, they shall no longer say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, there will come a moment when you won't just be suffering the sins of your ancestors. Yep, that has been the case. I mean, we've said 70 years. There will be people boring during that 70 years who did not themselves make these terrible decisions and those people are suffering the consequences of the decisions made by their ancestors, but there will come a time when that won't be the case. There will come a time, says God, when I will come especially close, even to the children. I will come so close that faith will be done in a different sort of way. But all shall die for their own sins, verse 30. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge. The days are surely coming, says the Lord. Whoops. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand, now this is the exodus and the wilderness wandering stuff that he's talking about here. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, said the Lord. Now listen to this. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's remarkable. You see, the covenant at one time seems to have been contained in stone tablets, right? Stone tablets. It was an external voice that came and sort of (laughs) perpetrated the law, (laughs) It kind of came, and it was an external voice that that kind of came in and invaded their space and said, no, you will live up to and into these commandments. You will live up to and into this calling. Now, I'm not saying at all that they were wrong, these commandments. I'm not saying at all that they were wrong. I, I will say to you, and Jesus does too, that sometimes the people of God had a way of misinterpreting those commandments and missing the heartbeat of God, missing the heartbeat of God. And when you misinterpret the commandments, not only do you miss the heartbeat of God, but it never quite reaches your heart. And in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, your heart is sort of the, the seed of your person, the core of your person, the seed of your motivations. What God wants is a faith that reaches you all the way to the level of your motivations, not just your empty behaviors but all the way to place where you understand yourself to be motivated by desires, all the way to the center of your being where you answer questions of identity. This is a very important thing now. Where you are answering questions of identity. Because now we're talking about, now we're talking about you being more than the worst thing that you've done. I don't know if you've ever been here for a baptism. Many of you have, most of you have. But we do baptisms in a very particular way, an intentional way around here. It, it is, the technical term for it. That's, I don't even know if it's a technical term. The historical term for it is we use the liturgy given to us by Hippolytus of Rome. And this liturgy is more than just the dunking part, which is a really fun part, right? We all like that. But it's more than that. You'll notice, whether it's me or Jason or Mike or Lisa or Zach, at some point in there, somebody is going to take a little bit of oil. And in the shape of a cross, Anoint that person who's about to be baptized with oil and say, this is meant to heal you. What are we healing people from? What kind of healing is made available in the baptistry? Well, here's what's happening. And you can hear it in the liturgy itself. This oil is meant to heal you from the damage that sin has done to you as you have perpetrated sins, as you have committed sins and as sins have been committed against you. Well, at least one of the things we're trying to heal in the baptistry, which is a place of profound identity change, one of the things we're trying to do with that oil is heal someone of this thought that I am or we are the worst thing that we've ever done. In the baptistry, where you're supposed to be given a new identity, In some traditions still, you're given a new name. That was our tradition at one time. We're not doing that so much now. But we still want to have the discussion about identity. You go into the water having a particular identity, a particular community, a particular responsibility, but you come out of that water, like the people on the other side of the Red Sea, with a new identity. I am now a member of this movement of the people of God. And in it, I find responsibility. I kind of know what I'm supposed to do now. In it, I find community. I, I am part of this larger movement. And in it, I find identity. Okay, this is who I am at the center of my being. I may go to work, but I am a believer who goes to work and not the other way around. I may have familial roles, but I'm a believer who happens to be a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter and not the other way around. I may have done this terrible thing in the past, but coming out of the water, I am granted such such powerful identity that now I'm not the person coming out of the water, I'm not the person who has done the bad thing, I am a believer who has some mistakes in my, on my record and in my past. But I'm something more than the worst thing that I've ever done. That oil part's bigger than you thought, huh? It is. But then, it causes me to wonder if we have fully considered the power of divine forgiveness. The power of divine forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't just get us out of our eternal jail for free. It opens up a new way to be alive. A new way to be alive. Verse 34. No longer, this sounds funny, this, no longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord. You won't need somebody up front telling you, you must do these things, you must think these thoughts. But God will come so close that all will know, there will be an intimacy to each person's relationship with God, each person's. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Friends, if we really got this, we would either be on our knees in gratitude or standing and applauding. Your God has the capacity to look you dead in the face To know exactly what you've done and what you've thought. That's really spooky. (laughs) What you've said in a quiet, private moment. Your God has the capacity to know all that there is to know about you that would, in the eyes of everyone else on the planet, that would disqualify you. Your God has the capacity to know all of that and still choose you. And forgive you and forget all of that stuff so that when God looks at you, God doesn't see that stuff. God doesn't see the cage, he sees the bird. Have you been forgiven like that? Do you need to be forgiven like that? Does someone around you need to be forgiven like that? This is a new covenant, we don't have to wait for the New Testament. In fact, I I think it's weird if we somehow pit the New Testament against the Old Testament here. If anything, Jesus just further explains and illustrates and embodies what is on offer here in the Old Testament. That kind of forgiveness. Walter Brueggemann says this, the new covenant will not be resisted because the Torah, the same commandments at Sinai, will be written on their hearts. That is... The commandments will not be an external rule which invites hostility. Who are you to tell me what to do? But now will be embraced internal identity giving mark so that obeying will be as normal and as readily accepted as breathing and eating. Now, what I would add is this, but I don't know if that part happens until you are almost embarrassed with gratitude that the God who knows you that well still chooses you and offers forgiveness on a regular basis. But hasn't this God always demonstrated that kind of life enabling forgiveness? Forgive me now and walk with me through a highlight reel of forgiveness as we have seen it in the biblical narrative. Let me say this before I get into it, divine forgiveness always, always, always comes with an identity update. An identity upgrade. What we've just heard, this isn't the only time that God moves back toward rebellious people or an unfaithful person, but listen now and watch and see how often a new future opens up because of the passion and intention of God. When our movements in faith and of faith happen, not because of the fear of guilt, but because of love and gratitude. In Genesis 8, the people have wandered so far from the dream of God, embodied by creation, that God does a whole do over. <laughs> and then God comes toward humanity, puts this weapon of war string to the ground. That's what the rainbow is it is a weapon of war that has been retired, string to the ground, and says, I will not do this again. In Genesis 15, You all know this is one of my favorite passages. God shows up and is going to force Abram, who would be Abraham someday, into a treaty that Abraham thinks is meant to somehow obligate him or frighten him into covenant with God. And so they set up this bloody path, this bloody gauntlet. He knew it was coming. They took a a three-year-old heifer, goat, and a ram, cut them in half, it was awful, it was bloody. And way back when, Abraham thought, the way that these things went, that he would be forced to walk the bloody path, and at the final step, would be un- it would be understood that, listen, if you screw up again, you'll be the next step in the path. But God shows up, and God walks the bloody path, and Abraham doesn't. That was Abraham, who was found to be guilty, and God came back anyway. Later on, book of Exodus, the people having been liberated out from under the thumb of the Pharaoh, they finally get frightened and they fashion this golden calf. Remember this whole thing? And God is so angry that God says to Moses, you better get down there before I wipe them all out. And Moses begs and pleads for the people of God and says, wait, this is not like you don't do it. And God says, yeah, but I'm that mad, I'm that mad. And Moses goes back and says, you can't do it. And if you're gonna do it, wipe me out too. But please find it in your heart to be merciful. And it's almost as if God walks away thinking about it and then walks back and says, I'm going to come for you again because that's who I am, says God. You can even see it and hear it in Psalm 25 when the singer says, God, don't remember the terrible things that I've done, but remember me. And God says, okay. In the book of Hosea, which is meant to be this long, prolonged parable (laughs) explaining how it is that God deals with God's people, Hosea is supposed to marry Gomer, who turns out you all pride my French to be the town prostitute? That's unpleasant, right? But God says to Hosea on a regular basis throughout this book, listen, you are explaining how it is that God loves God's people. I know this is difficult between you, Gomer, you, Hosea, and Gomer. But you pursue her the way God pursues God's people. You all. Hosea buys time in her bed, so that during that time he could say to her, I will treat you like a covenant spouse. Remember, Hosea is embodying God there. God goes where we are to reach us because that's who God is. But it's not just the Old Testament, right? The biggest, most mind-blowing thing to the people watching the interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus was that Jesus would dare step foot in his house and have a meal. You weren't supposed to do that. But Jesus did, again embodying whatever it is about God that always comes to where the broken person is to restore the person and the relationship. The woman was actually caught in the act of adultery. Everybody know that? And though the word doesn't show up there, Jesus opens the door to the cage and says, well, you don't have to be known as the adulterous woman I grant you a new lease on life. Simon Peter failed three times when Jesus needed him the most. (laughs) And so what does Jesus do? Jesus, in his resurrection, makes him breakfast. (laughs) Again, shares a meal with someone who had failed miserably. But forgiveness goes where the other is and restores the other and the connection. Y'all, Saul was killing, participating in the killing of Christians. And Jesus sought him out and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, I know what you've been doing, Jesus says, but here's what you're gonna do. First of all, we're gonna change your name because you get a new identity in this whole deal and I'm gonna forgive you. And you're gonna be the means whereby who knows how many people to this day, by reading your words and your testimony, are won back to the heart of God. Because you, of all people, you, Saul, now Paul, are going to be a tangible demonstration that God can forgive and offer new hope, new identity, new possibility. Forgiveness from God always comes with an identity upgrade that separates you in the eyes of God from your worst moment on your worst day. Who needs to be forgiven? And who needs to grant forgiveness? John, you do not know what he or she has done to me. And I might not. I might not understand what it is that he or she has done for you, done to you. And and maybe you're not ready yet. That's okay, too. But you are constantly and weakly offered the kind of forgiveness that opens up new hope and new possibilities for your life. And to be a good steward of the new thing that God has given you, to be a good steward of it, means at some level you make it available to others. It doesn't mean you go back to the abusing spouse. It does mean that with God's help, that you might be able to see the other as something other than or more than the worst thing that he or she has ever done. I sat with the woman not too long ago Who was herself the victim of multiple crimes, (laughs) multiple crimes, and the person who had committed those crimes was up for parole, and she called me and said, I've got to talk, because I don't know how to pray, because I hate this person, and friends, knowing the stories, they are terrifying, and if anybody had a reason to hate somebody else, she had a reason to hate him, and she had a reason, she had a reason to be worried about whether or not he would ever get out. What can I do, she said. What am I supposed to tell her? <laughs> I, I, I don't want to give her a Sunday school answer. Well, you know what it says in the Bible. So here's what I said. Here's what I pray for you, I said to her. I pray that you would be able to bask in the gaze of the God who knows you and still chooses you. And that there would be something about that experience and the gratitude that should come bubbling to the surface when you know that God knows you and still chooses you that should help to organize your steps where anything else is concerned. Do I have to forgive, she asked. Like, I... I don't want to make forgiveness a legalistic thing. What I want it to be is an outgrowth of the intimacy enjoyed between God and God's people. And so I dropped the line on her that we use all the time around here. <laughs> I'm not willing to forgive," she said. "Like I-, I think that's okay. I think that's okay. But are you willing to be willing? Are you willing?" to be willing. I don't think she's obligated to any more than what comes out of her gratitude for having been chosen and salvaged and rescued by God. I think during the steps of that journey God will work that through with her. In other words, you are welcome at this table no matter where you are on this journey. Because maybe, maybe where you are on your journey of forgiveness, maybe it's the, the forgiveness that you need to offer somebody else. Maybe you're at the place where you're saying, nope, not yet. That's okay. You're welcome here. Or maybe you're the person who says, I need to be able to look in the mirror and see myself as something other than the person who did the terrible thing. Well, that forgiveness is on offer here today as well. I mean, each week, y'all its broken body and shed blood. The consequences of sin are on full display and offered to us as evidence of costly forgiveness that is still and stubbornly made available each and every moment. If you're visiting with us today, uh, you'll notice that we take communion by intention. If you're gonna help us to set the table, go ahead and come forward if you would. Heavenly Father, bless us as we move into this moment of importance, this important, sacred, sacramental moment. Help us, God, to be aware of what it is that is on offer this morning. Help us to be aware that somehow we are to take these moments so seriously and so personally that they may reorganize us from the inside out. Today, God, may people be aware that they are known fully and deeply and yet still chosen. God, my prayer is that somebody today will become aware of their chosenness at such a deep level that it may actually result in some embarrassment, but more gratitude. We take communion by intention around here, and here's what that means. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand to your feet to exit your pews to the left, so that way. Then to come forward with your hands cupped to receive this grace, to receive this grace. As you approach a person holding a plate of bread, that person will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread, don't eat it. Take that piece of bread and dip it into the cup, When you do, the person holding the cup will say to you, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And please know that what you're seeing in the most tangible of ways in that moment is the very forgiveness of God in tangible form. Each week, this is a reminder that you are both the person or just like the person who would have perpetrated these sorts of crimes. And yet God understands you as the forgiven of God. after you take and eat and drink, please find a place to pray. And it can be at one of these side padded altars or it can be up here at the front. If you come to a side padded altar, we will assume that you're there for a prayer for healing. If you come here to the front, we won't assume anything, but somebody at some point will pray with you. You can circle right back around and sit at your seats and pray and we won't assume a thing. We would love to have the opportunity to pray with you if you need to pray up front. Now, if you prefer something pre-packaged, then the people who are gonna dismiss by rows are holding plates of elements. And as they come by, you can just take one of those, and as soon as you get one, go ahead and take and eat and drink, it will have been blessed, and we're gonna do the liturgy here in a second, so go right ahead, but please pray, please pray. If you'd like to make a special trip down here, There's a bowl of water meant to remind you of the moment of your baptism, which is meant to be, if you'll remember, a moment of identity upgrade. If you need to be reminded of that moment, that's what this little bowl of water is for. It was on the night that it was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken by you and for you and every time you eat of it, remember me. In the same way, he would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And every time you drink of it, including today, remember me. And folks, that word remember is not a throwaway. Please remember, no matter what it is, that you suffer or have suffered, please remember to remember that this God who has suffered has forgiven you. Has forgiven you. Now, all across the sanctuary, if you would, stand to your feet. Exit your pews to the left as you are dismissed. And come and receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God. Going to begin with the prayer of confession. I know summer's still coming. Before turning it over to Britt, prayers of intercession and then the Lord's Prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess. We confess that at times. Not only do we struggle to forgive, but Father, sometimes we struggle to receive this kind of forgiveness from you. For some, it is easier to be guilted into forgiving the other, even if it's just at a surface level. It's still easier to do that than it is to actually receive forgiveness from the one who knows us deeply and thoroughly and still chooses us. My prayer is that in this sacred moment, nourished by broken body and shed blood, that you will move us even if it's just an inch closer to the kind of forgiveness that perhaps we've only dreamt of. The kind of forgiveness that does in fact make it possible for us to be something more than the worst thing that we've done. We confess, God, that sometimes having not received that forgiveness, confess that we find it very difficult to offer that kind of forgiveness. So now in these quiet moments, as Jeffrey plays, I'd like for you to pray that prayer and consider first, whether you have received this kind of forgiveness. And second, whether or not you have had the strength to offer this kind of forgiveness. this as we pray to the God who by forgiving us can open a new future may the Almighty God have mercy on us all and forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Spirit keep us in eternal life
0: As we continue in a posture of prayer, won't you join me in praying for those who are recovering from surgeries among us? Thinking especially of Marlene McBay and Lee Nichols. And pray for one of our volunteer pastors, Debbie McCulloch, as she ministers at the border. will you pray for those affected by war in our world? a moment to try something new and pray for someone to your right the person to your right maybe there is no person to your right but there's someone on your heart or on your mind that you can pray for in this moment and you may not even know them but won't you lift up a prayer for that person this morning And notice the person to your left, maybe this person is across the aisle, maybe there's nobody there, but you can pray for someone who is on your heart this morning. Won't you pray for that person on your left? God, we come to you this morning as humans with complicated lives. Some things going well, some things that are difficult, Some of us have walked in here with hearts that are heavier than they've been in a long time. Won't you be with us as we walk this road with each other? Walk alongside us, even as we are learning to walk alongside one another. Now we're gonna take a moment to pray together the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in whatever language is comfortable for you. And if you're not familiar with this prayer, you can see it on the screens.